Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to make them. Good evening, Max Cryer. How are you? And good evening to you. We start this evening with the word vote. Well, it's the word of the week. I thought we'll have a look at vote. It's no surprise that the word comes from Latin, um, but it is, in fact, a, a fairly unusual example of an ancient Latin word and an ancient Greek word which share a very similar structure. The Latin word is votum, mm -hmm. which was a variant on volvio, and that meant, wait for this, to vow, to vow or to wish, which somehow fitted into the development of democracy so that people could demonstrate what they wished for with a certain person or party and would remain faithful to that, which is what we call a vote. Do you see the connection? Yes. They were vowing for somebody and wishing for somebody. Now, the word also developed a far more general application if referring to the proportion of people who voted for part a or part B, and that is referred to as the collective totality of people who voted in one particular direction or another. The vote went such and such a way, or the mm. vote went another way. So there we have the word vote from the ancient Latin word to vow. I don't know if people are faithful to their voting, though. Often they can chop and change, can't they? When, when, when I think vow, I think faithful and forever in terms of getting married. But I guess when it comes to voting, it can be a little bit, I guess, less face faithful. Well, the, to my way of thinking, the, the theory was that at the moment that you cast your vote, you are vowing for that party. Ah, uh, yes, yes. If a week later you've changed your mind, then you're no longer actually voting. That's after voting. You've really parcelled the suffragette anniversary so well, Max. We did suffragette last week and vote this week. Yes. No coincidence there? Not at all. No, okay. Why are red-haired men, red-haired men, so blokes with, with red hair, why are they called blue? Did you know about this? No, never heard of it. Well, uh, when it came in, I, I noticed that I did know of it. I've heard it, but I wasn't quite sure whether it was all that well known. Now, the answer's not straightforward. It certainly does exist. Men with red hair in some places are referred to as blue, but that's mm. a name, you know. Now, the scholars and the researchers are a wee bit reserved about how this version came about, but it's based on another widely believed version about something else which is true. So I'll go ahead and tell the two versions, even though I can't guarantee their validity, but then neither could anyone else. Mm. Well, to begin with, some Australians developed a custom of referring to a fight, a stouch, a rumble, a Donnybrook as a blue. Oh, bit of a blue. Yeah, a I've heard blue. that. Yes. yes, well, now, this is actually quite good. The reason for that is believed to be that such an event often resulted in a court summons, and an Australian court summons was printed on blue paper. So a blue meant very likely you'd be sued in front of a judge. <laughs> now, in time, the expression moved to the fight itself. The street ruckus or the pub brawl became known as a blue because many times such an event resulted in the police arriving and handing out blue summonses to court. Now, that all makes sense. Mm. That, that sort of Absolutely. Then, during the 1850s, there was a large influx of immigrants arriving in Australia hoping to make fortunes in the gold fields. Many of those immigrants were Irish, 
who soon gave the reputation as hard drinkers and lively fighters, and many of those Irishmen had red hair. So quite often the red-haired Irishmen got involved in a blue, which meant a fight, so Australians often give redheads the nickname Bluey, or say, there goes a blue. There goes someone heading towards having a blue handed to him. To this day, Australians often give redheads the nickname Bluey. And there's also a slight enhancement to the story, namely that if for some unknown reason there's a concept that if someone or someones are doing a lot of swearing, it will turn the air blue. Now, you've heard that. Mm, mm, mm. Turn the air blue. Alas, there's no clear explanation about how that came into being, only that smoke, which is blue, obscures clarity and swearing doesn't give much information. So where we've got to there is that a, a redhead's called blue because the Irish love fighting and a lot of Irish were redheads and they'd get into a blue so they just decided to call them all blue or bluey. Well, that's one of the theories. It's the only theory I could come across that had any sort of veracity to it. That's a bit of a slur then, isn't it? Oh, there are many of those in the English <laughs> language. <laughs> Bluey. Oh, heavens, yes. Blue, OK. So the redheads are called blue, and now we know why. This is, next word is a tricky one. Quantum. It's a very tricky one. The word itself is very, very simple. But can the same word mean opposite meanings? Um... The listener said, for example, quantum leap as opposed to quantum mechanics. Uh, the first indicates a giant leap forward, but doesn't the second one mean an atomic level? Well, the listener is quite right because he's ventured into a very complex field there, which I'll do my best with. The word quantum can be seen as a nightmare uh, because, as the listener points out, mm. it can refer to a description of a mechanical activity or it can be used to describe the impression of a large distance. But strangely, the word itself is marginally easy to understand if you look at where it comes from and what it actually means. Quantum is a Latin word, and it's, it, it is the question... It's a question. It's not an adjective. It's a question. Mm. Quantum is a question meaning how much. It's that simple. And when you can sort of overcome that surprise, that quantum means how much, uh, and from the same Latin word we find the close relative is the English word quantity, which means the same thing. Ah. How much. So that's an attempt to put things as simply as possible. Um, which is the end of simplicity because theoretically the word quantum introduces and describes or just suggests the subject of how much, but the brown stuff starts to hit the fan when we try to understand how that fits some of the esoteric highways and byways of how you hear it used in subjects like physics. So the listener mentions quantic, quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics or quantum physics is a study which describes or refers to quote, the smallest levels of energy of atoms and subatomic particles, mm. end quote. Now, theoretically, the use of the word quantum introduces your awareness, not just of what the force can do, but how there are many ingredients which make it able to do that. Once you know that Latin word quantum means, it also sort of explains the expression quantum leap. Quantum leap refers to an abrupt abrupt change. Not a change which happens slowly, but a distance, real or metaphorical, which if it could be counted in units could be seen to be dramatically higher than things that went shortly before. So, by using the word quantum, 
you're saying, how much was this leap? This leap, And you're saying it in shorthand, that the leap measured a great many units of distance, scholarship, behavior, custom, whatever the context is. So, curiously, the word quantum also occasionally crops up in legal terminology with the same meaning. The judge can decree that an amount of money can be legally paid for some crisis, for instance, in a situation where damages are being sought, and the situation can result in the statement, quote, the court must determine the quantum of compensation due, end of quote, meaning how much. I'm aware that the explanation is an attempt to simplify a very complex system of using this word quantum, but it's the best I can achieve. If you're seeing the word anywhere, somehow indicates that whatever is associated, it's not a simple matter. It has detailed significances which the title doesn't include, but quantum indicates that the activity being named is not a simple one like water running out of a tap. It's a complex combination of several integrated elements, and the word quantum signifies this. The structure is complex, and these individual matters are not named, but the word quantum is a warning, an indication that the subject is complex or long-reaching, because the word quantum means how much. Mm, see, with leap, quantum leap is always the use that I'm, I've heard the most. Yes. And a quantum leap to me is a very big leap or, or, or a great distance, as you say. But then it, what you've essentially told us today is it actually means how much. Well, yes, you say how much with your eyebrows raised. You know, such and such has made a quantum leap into so-and-so. And you say, you know, your eyebrows raised when you hear the word quantum because the leap is obviously so big and so sudden that probably you can't explain how many ingredients there are. Mm. Or you could, but it would take a page and a half. And, of course, the, the listener mentions... Um, mentions subjects like quantum mechanics, which is requires a scientist to explain it. Mm. But my job is to explain the word, and quantum really means how much. So it's just an indicator that you're dealing with something complex that's going to take a month to sort out. Words with Max Cryer. We continue after the break here on Radio Live. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. We continue this Saturday evening. Max, what is the origin of Jubilee? The word Jubilee. Yeah, a listener noticed that sometimes it's a celebration called a Jubilee and sometimes it's called a 50th Jubilee. And the listener says, what is the difference? Well, if it involves a celebration of 50 years, it's quite correct to say just Jubilee mm. because that's what the word Jubilee actually means. 50. It means 50 years. Um, the basis of the word comes from the Hebrew, Yobel. Yobel is the ram's horn which was blown in the synagogue thousands of years ago and still is blown there today to celebrate the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. Mm. The background to that was the Jewish custom of marking the year which came after seven times seven years, which is 49, and the next year, the 50th, was the Jubilee. Mm. And you'll find it in the book of Leviticus. Quote, The Lord instructed Moses, you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each shall return to his family. 
That is the founding document of mm. the studies of Jubilees and the use of the name. So, um, after seven times seven years, the following year was spent freeing slaves, restoring stolen property, planting certain crops, and it was the Jubilee year. Therefore, if you abide by the Bible, strictly speaking, if you say 50th Jubilee, you're performing a tautology. Do you know about a tautology? No. <laughs> tautology is you're saying the same thing twice. Because Jubilee means 15, 50th Jubilee, right. you're saying 50th it's 50th Jubilee is a tautology because essentially you're saying Jubilee, Jubilee, 50, 50. Yes, and another tautology would be rich millionaire. Mm. Do you get it? Got it. Got. Yeah. And if you say 75th Jubilee, you are performing an oxymoron mm -hmm. because the first half doesn't match the second half. I love an oxymoron. <laughs> jubilee means 50, so if you have a 75th Jubilee, you're actually telling a lie. People say that, though, don't they? They do, yes. School reunions. I mean, and it, It's just it's sort of morphed into a word. Jubilee means we're, we're just celebrating a date, but people yes, perhaps forget yes. that it means 50. Well, it's only word freaks like me that sort of come up with this feeling. I mm. don't think you're going to be sent to jail by saying, you know, the 25th Jubilee or the 45th Jubilee or a wedding Jubilee of 21 years. No, well, fine. 25 is just a half Jubilee. But if someone writes and asks me what it means, I have to tell the truth. And the truth is that Jubilee means 50. Well, as, as we've just agreed, I hope not everybody does abide by the Bible, and many words have shifts over the years, so there has been modification. Curiously, it was the Christian church, ignoring the Bible, which decided to modify the Bible, in this case, um, Pope Boniface VIII in 1300 organised there was a new kind of jubilee invented which was only 25 years mm. and that continued among believers of the Roman Catholic branch of Christianity and at the same time the Latin word jubilare which means to shout out loud gradually amalgamated with the Hebrew yobel and we got the word jubilation which goes together nicely with jubilee because jubilees generally aren't quiet now after that watering down from 50 to 25 years other inventions took place after 25 years on the throne queen um, queen victoria had what was called a silver jubilee and then after 50 years she had a real jubilee which was sometimes called a golden jubilee and the terminology was coming from the fashion of sending greeting cards so it was Heavily, pro heavily encouraged by the printing industry, you see. Oh, of course. As with Easter and Christmas and Halloween of and everything course. else, where you don't need cards for them, but they're there. Now, by the time Victoria had been on the throne for 60 years, legend has it that she herself actually invented the term Diamond Jubilee to mark 60 years. Ooh. Now, ever since then, there's been a crisscrossing of invented wedding anniversary descriptions and invented Jubilee descriptions, all with cards and presents attached. When Queen Elizabeth II had been on the throne 25 years, she had a silver Jubilee. And then in 2002, she had her 50th one, was quite rightly called her Jubilee because Jubilee is 50. And in 2012, she'd been queen for 60 years, and I think it was referred to as a diamond jubilee, though she sensibly did not seem to expect being gift gifts of diamonds. So the terminology has branched out since the Bible book of Leviticus, and there are times when a school or a sports club or a small town are inclined to use the term jubilee for any number past 19. Thank you, Max. That was very thorough. Uh, jubilation. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? You don't hear jubilation 
too often these days. Jubilation T. Cornpone is a fictional character in America. Is that right? Yes. Now, finally, we look at the background to Merry England. What, what context are you talking here, Merry England? Uh, well, you see, the listener bought a piece of music about Robin Hood, um, a sort of book of songs, and, and on the front it was Robin Hood and his Merry Men, which was M-E-R-R-I-E, mm -hmm. and the listener was conscious that sometimes the spelling does occur as Merry England, spelled I-E, and mm -hmm. his question to me was... When did Mary England with an I-E get replaced by Mary, spelt with a Y? And uh, he tells me about his Robin Hood book. The spelling intrigued him. When did the Y come in? Is there a reason? Well, alas, alas. Mm. I have to report that either Mary England or Mary Men were not normally ever spelt with it with an IE ending. The IE ending is pure invention to give people a more colourful impression of times past. And to put the pot right on it, the Oxford Dictionary describes M-E-R-R-I-E as mm. pseudo-archaic. Ooh, naughty. Yes. <laughs> naughty for... Well, how did it happen? How did it happen? Well, quite a long time ago, Imaginative writers and advertisers had conjured up descriptions and perceptions of part of England's long-ago social history as if everything before the Industrial Revolution was being seen through rose-tinted glasses. Everyone was merry. Now, the word merry, with a Y, the word merry has been in English for approximately 700 years, spelt M-E-R-R-Y. Now, the made-up occasional use of the IE ending goes back about about a hundred years as a gimmick. But William Wordsworth didn't agree with it. He's, he wrote Merry England with a Y. It's hard to say why, but somehow the fake antique-sounding spelling M-E-R-R-I-E helped fuel optimistic beliefs about a picturesque way of life which has never been proven to have actually existed. It was a spelling gimmick. The writers used it to add to an image of, of, for instance, Robin Hood and his merry men, to catch the eye on book titles and somehow contribute to an image of picturesque England symbolised by thatched cottages, country inns and Robin Hood. And I have to say, it's not quite clear that Robin Hood ever existed at all, but if he did, it was 700 years ago. Mm. Mm. Now, the phrase Merry England, spelt with I-E or not, has been described by historian Roy Judge as, quote, a word that has never actually existed, a visionary mythical landscape where it is difficult to take normal historical bearings, end quote. So, alas, the concept of Merry England hundreds of years ago has been dismissed as an illusion of nostalgia. The invention of an England which was merry, i.e., showed peasants as poor but honest, strong and happy, and the squire or lord of the manor caring for his people as a father would care for his family. At certain points in the year, the people sang, danced and made merry in spring, summer and autumn on the village green or in the fields, and at Christmas the squire threw open his hall, as dictated by his old English hospitality, and that image, alas, is regarded by historians as an invention. So to answer the original question, the spelling of Mary as M-E-R-R-I-E -R -R -E was an invented gimmick which added 
It does add a sort of friendly old-fashioned-ish impression to whatever it was describing or selling. It was used as the name for a series of funny movie cartoons during the 1940s. They were called Merry Melodies. But to answer the listener's actual question, there was never a time when the spelling Merry I.E. changed to Merry Y because Mary with a Y has been the usual spelling for several hundred years. And Mary I.E. was an invented spelling which in fact in history never existed and is, alas, dismissed by the Oxford Dictionary as pseudo-archaic. Wow. That's a crushing one, isn't it? <laughs> pseudo-archaic. I'm so sorry. It's I'm looking back at a utopian time. It's just looking back through those no, rose-tinted no, no, glasses look, and describing at, it as an Mary. imagined utopian time. That's right. the point. I mean... Robin Hood 700 years ago, with all due respect, I'm, I hope the listener is not disappointed in all this information because he sent me a picture of the book. And there's Robin Hood looking sort of striking and colourful and youthful and handsome and glamorous. And if it were 700 years ago, if there really was a Robin Hood, I don't think he would have looked that good. And it wouldn't have been spelled Mary I.E. You only made a very small reference there to Christmas. I was waiting for it to say when it, when it was introduced as Merry Christmas, because that's what we say. But that's, of course, with a Y. Yes, well, that that's... And, that, and that's yeah. cheerful, happy... Yeah, but his question was about the spelling of Mary, and Merry Christmas has always been spelt with a Y. Mm. But Merry England has got this sort of following of Merry I.E. and Robin Hood and his Merry Men. And when one think of what life must have been like 700 years ago, I doubt that very much of it was Mary. But that's not the point. He wanted to know where does the word come from, and I've done my best. Mm. And, and nothing it's got nothing to do with the name Mary either, even though it sounds... No, no nothing. Nothing with now, tomorrow is the 130th, 132nd anniversary, 1887, of Chief Tehiohio Tukino making a gift to the New Zealand government of three mountains, 80,000 hectares of them, Tongariro, Narawahoe and Ruapehu. Now, that gift became the basis of Tongariro National Park in 1894 mm. and 100 years later was awarded World Heritage Site status. And most of the world saw Narawahoe featuring in The Lord of the Rings playing the role of Mount Doom. Now, the park contains skiing areas, beautiful lakes, hot springs, steaming craters, and a monitoring system surveys the entire territory and gives warning if any erupting is about to occur. Oh, yes, and that Lahar monitoring system, of course, that Tangiwai disaster was, was shocking back in the 50s. But uh, So that's 132 years that that's been in, in government possession, yes. which is fantastic. 1887. Did you ever walk the Tongariro crossing, Max? I, I have long legs, but they're not good at walking long distances. Mm, it's a fantastic walk. Absolutely beautiful. Right, thank you for coming in, Max. Uh, hey, before you go, can we tease the listeners? Have you got a book coming out soon? <laughs> have you? I, I will answer that if you have a guess at what the book might be about. Oh, surely it's about words. Surely it's a word book. It's about curious words and phrases in the English language. OK, yes. we, will, we will look out for that one. Ladies and gentlemen, Max Cryer, always a pleasure on the Weekend Variety Wireless. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. From acclaimed feminist theatre makers Julia Croft, Virginia Frankovich and Nisha Madan comes a new work, 
Medusa. It's playing at Wellington's Circa Theatre until October the 6th and at Auckland's Q Theatre from October the 24th to November the 3rd. And to discuss Medusa, we welcome in one of the creators, Julia Croft. Hi, Julia. How are you this evening? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on. Good. Now, Medu oh, such a pleasure. Medusa, uh, this refers to, uh, the title of the play refers to an ancient uh, sort of myth. Talk to me about, about what this is and, and what's the reason behind this play. Sure. So, um, Medusa is uh, actually a pre-Greco-Roman figure. She appears in Egyptian and African mythology, this woman with snakes for hair. Mm -hmm. um, but she's mostly well known through um, as a Greek myth in Ovid's Metamorphosis. She was a beautiful maiden who was turned into a monster by Athena. And her most famous quality is that she, when she looks at one, when she looks at people, she turns them to stone. So um, Perseus, uh, another dude who's going around doing things in Greek times, uh, chops off her head and uses her head as a weapon to turn his enemies to stone. Wow. So that's the, yeah, that's the kind of mythology behind Medusa. And she sort of pops up in pop culture quite a lot. She's the um, symbol for Versace. She's um, the symbol for absence. Uh, she's popped up in various poems and pop songs and films over the years. Mm. Um, and she's kind of become a way, in the second wave in the 70s, she became a way for women to talk about anger and the monstrous or sort of transgressive parts of themselves. Um, so we're kind of in that vein of trying to reclaim some of um, the monstrous and inappropriate and angry parts of ourselves, I guess. This has been inspired by your, or using your personal experience as a bit of creative inspiration as a protest against what uh, you see as being stagnating views of feminism in New Zealand. Talk to me about these themes that, that come through your play. Well, I think the ways in which the three of us, myself, Nisha and Virginia, uh, like to conceive of our relationship to feminism is not just a desire to see women in positions of power in the system that already exists, but rather uh, we would like to see the system, the structures completely change. Because mm. I think, uh, I don't think it's a radical thing to say what's happening right now isn't working for a lot of people, women and non-binary folk and a whole bunch of other marginalised people that are struggling under the current power structure and struggling under capitalism. Um, so I guess we're looking for ways to challenge structures that seem immovable. Mm. And one really great way to do that is by challenging the way we tell stories and challenging the three-act structure and the rules of storytelling and that, that are kind of stand-in for a lot of other patriarchal structures that sometimes get in the way of being able to be oneself. I guess when you look back to the 70s that you touched on before and that whole mm -hmm. feminist movement, Laura Mulvey wrote a really famous essay, uh, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which really mm -hmm. blew it wide open in terms mm. of this concept of the male gaze, sort of invoking yes. the sexual politics of the male gaze that women were object, uh, were an object viewed 
um, through cinema, but from the point of view of the heterosexual male desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that sort of concept just blew it wide open back in the 70s. And, and, yes. I, and I guess that's sort of some of the themes that you're playing off today. Well, I think we've... Um all, all of the three of us have made work, um, feminist work, for a few years now. And actually, the first piece of work me and Virginia made together was um, uh, about the male gaze in cinema. And I think what we're doing in this work is less trying to point at the male gaze, but trying to conceive of what a female gaze might be. Yep. Um, and inspired by the filmmaker Jill Soloway, who is the creator of a really great TV series called Transparent. Um, they did an address at the Toronto Film Festival a couple of years ago where they tried to kind of lay out what a female gaze might be and look like in terms of specifically, in their case, um, filmmaking, but I think it applies to any kind of art. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of, we, we've made our Laura Mulvey piece and now we're riffing off what, rather than pointing at how bad the, the and how pervasive the male gaze is, trying to create our own female gaze. Medusa sort of epitomises female monstrosity, if you like. Uh, I, I yeah. guess the inner anger. And is this something we see in, in your performance? Yes. Yeah, we, we are trying to create monsters. We're trying to um, create, make ourselves monstrous and hopefully beautiful at the same time. I think what, what's interesting, I mean, what we get stuck in, I think, in a lot of ways when we're talking about gender or power or Medusa is that things are either ugly or they're beautiful or they're male or they're female or they're good or they're bad. And I guess we're more interested in that yummy middle ground where something is monstrous but it's also sexy or it's ugly but it's also stunningly beautiful and trying to... And we're angry but we're also having a really good time being that angry mm, mm, mm. so we're trying to find those yummy middle bits that are hard to put one's finger on but feel uh like there's more possibility of how to make art and how to live as a human and those spaces in between these binaries oh. so it is monstrous and we are we do try and channel it in a monster but we do it in a way that brings us a lot of joy and makes me feel like a rock star. <laughs> I want to peel back here from the, uh, I guess, the discussions about the themes and, and and feminism and talk about the work itself. You've mm-hmm. got a history of sort of a, a style that sits between theatre, dance and performing art all rolled mm-hmm. into one. Um, in terms of nuts and bolts, what is it? what can people expect when they go to this play? Is there a lot of dialogue? Is there a lot of music is it told in silence how what sort of aspects can people expect when they come along to medusa actually a bit of all of the above we sort of unashamedly steal or are inspired by theater and dance and performance art and in this case we're working with this amazing musician and sound designer Mm. called claire duncan who performs as a musician under her um, monica ie crazy and she is incredible so this piece is really sound led Mm. Um, there is dance and, and we're not dancers, but there is a lot of movement in it. There is a lot, actually a lot of text, but not, not dialogue. Um, and it is, there's a logic to it that is based, I think, more on the one subconscious or our three collective subconsciouses. Uh, so there's not a story per se. 
but mm. there's um, there is text and there is movement and there is amazing sound and there's beautiful lights and it's kind of formally hard to put your finger on what it is, but I think that's part of it. I think that's part of what makes the work so interesting, particularly as feminist work of it's kind of actively resisting any definition you want to put on it. Mm, mm. Um, but there's a bit of there's literally a bit of everything. And I guess that with uh, with a performance like you've just explained, you're really asking the audience to come along and engage and and make their decisions in regards mm-hmm. to to how they interact and what they take from from the performance. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think because um, I guess we're not we're wanting to open up the room when we're performing in a way that doesn't presuppose that we as performers have all the power or the audience has all the power, but rather we're trying to build a room where we can diffuse the power in the room. So this work gives the audience a lot of agency and because we're working in a hut with a lot of imagery and sound and uh, in a non-linear way, I think it allows audiences a lot of space to bring their own selves and their own memories and their own thoughts and their own associations into the work. So it might end up feeling like it means different things for different people, perhaps, mm. or I hope. I hope that we don't, it, we don't, uh, we're not tyrants telling you what the meaning is. Part of the joy, I think, is to discover for yourself where the meaning is and, and how that resonates with you as an audience member. This, that makes sense. Yeah, this is part of the Women in Theatre Festival in Wellington, and it's mm-hmm. we've, we've just had the celebration 125 years of women's suffrage in New Zealand. So um, yeah. these issues have been bubbling to the surface, uh, and it's fantastic that you're using performance, I guess, as a form of activism in a way. Yeah, what yeah, are 100%. what are some of the things, I guess, themes out there today um, that that you guys are you know subconsciously pushing back on? What, what what things out there? I mean, the Me Too movement, for example, this year has brought to light, um, you mm-hmm. know, things that that uh, that have been oppressing women for for, mm-hmm. for many many years. So we are seeing, I guess, an eruption of of feelings coming to the surface. Yeah. But but women yeah. need 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 to to have that outlet to do so. Yeah, and I think I feel like there's a huge cultural shift that's happening very quickly. Over the last couple of years, the cultural landscape is is really shifting, and Me Too is a huge part of that. And I always like to say, I feel like making performance is just we're adding a tiny drop of water to the tidal wave that's coming. And you can, I feel like you can literally feel the tidal wave coming, and it's about to crash. And I think it's a really, for me, a really exciting full space to be in because I think people that have been historically marginalised or oppressed are starting to tell their own stories and claim their own space and ask for a world in which we conceive of power differently. Mm. Where, um, and I think it, and off the back of Me Too that it's become really obvious actually how uh, you can't change the world if your personal safety is often at risk or under threat. So I think that's such a great way to start building change is to demand a cultural shift where women and non-binary folk 
have the right to feel safe in the world. You do this play, or you've created this play with Virginia Frankovich and Nisha Madan. Can you just talk to me mm-hmm. a little bit about some of their strengths and what it's like working with them and perhaps um, what input they've had in, into this? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's really um, the three of us have worked together in various ways, often in partnerships for the past three or four years. Um, so I've made two solo works, one with Nisha and one with Virginia, and they've worked together on a piece of work together as well. So we've sort of been working around each other Mm. for the last three or four years, and also we're very great friends, so we hang out together all the time, so we feel very involved in one another's life and work. Mm. But this is the first time the three of us have worked together on something, which has been um, just an absolute joy, I think, because we're such great friends but quite different people. We've created this, we call the show our three-headed monster, it's mm. this strange monster baby that we've that we've created together and it brings me so much joy because I think we do come with different strengths. Um, Nisha is incredibly intelligent and has so much integrity as an artist and Virginia has a wildness and a spontaneity and an anarchy to her that she brings to the table. And I think I... I don't know, it's hard with yourself, but I think I sit somewhere in between. <laughs> so I feel like what we've made is an equal part. I hope has a lot of integrity and is deeply considered, but is also kind of nuts and really fun. And with the addition of Claire Duncan, who is a literal rock star, it feels by the end, I think, like a gig. Mm. When I'm performing it, I genuinely feel like, I'm a rock star, which is just, that's all you want really, isn't it? Absolutely. You, um, <laughs> you had really a lot of success with uh, If There's Not Dancing at the Revolution, I'm Not Coming. Mm-hmm. And that was played out uh, to sellouts all around the world. Uh, yeah. And uh, what's the plan with this? It starts in Wellington. Uh, well, it started in Wellington and we, we moved to Auckland sort of in November is there mm-hmm. plans to take this around the world as well, if, if all going well? Well, we've, we haven't made it easy for ourselves. If, uh, if there's not dancing and Power Ballad both pack up in a suitcase, and this show definitely doesn't. Okay. There's a lot of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think we'll sort of see how, how it goes, see if um, how people receive it and where it sits. But I would certainly love to keep going with it because it's so much work to make a theatre show it seems so sad to me just to do it once and then put it to bed. I'd like to just keep doing it over and over again because, you know, you do. I do feel a little bit with these shows like they're your babies. Mm, mm. And, and you and love you, them and you want to keep them with you. And you almost mourn them when it's all over and you've got to sort of move you on really to your next do. thing. You're like, come back because I'm having so much fun. Yeah. Well, I keep with, if there's not dancing, which I've been doing since 2015... I keep, every season now I keep going, no, this is the last one. I don't think I'll do this show again. And then after six months, I go, oh, I really miss that show. Mm-hmm. I really want to do it again. So it, they keep living to see another day. We're speaking with Julia Croft about Medusa, which is playing at Wellington Circa Theatre until October the 6th and goes to Auckland at the Q Theatre from the 24th of October. I've also done a little bit of background checks and I know just quietly you're working on something else uh called working on my night moves now i assume this is not uh inspired by bob seger's song uh night moves but do tell us i mean it actually is a little bit inspired by bob seger's night moves 
because I love that song so much. <laughs> Maybe um, we can play it, it has, tonight. Oh, it, we're still, I've only just started working on that show, but at the moment that song does feature in it. Brilliant. Um, so that's, oh, that's so a solo, big Bob. solo work I'm making. Cool. And, and, and so that'll be on next year in March. And similar sort of themes, or can you give us a... Uh, well, that one is trying to... Um, the uh, audacious attempt to try and make a feminist futurism. Mm. So I feel like I've spent quite a few years um, making feminist work that comes out of a place of challenge, and that one is an attempt to create a, a feminist futurist utopia, um, possibly in outer space. So it's early days at the moment, but I'm reading a lot of um, Ursula Le Guin and feminist sci-fi. No, no and men to bother you around out there. Well, a little, we might need one or two. Let's <laughs> 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 get one or two around. Okay. Um, and we'll kind of see how that one takes shape. But at the moment, it's involving a lot of wrapping myself up in tin foil um, to look like an astronaut. <laughs> Julia. You are going to inspire many people with the work you do, but who inspires you? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm really inspired by a whole bunch of really brilliant artists in this country. Um, there are some amazing women of my generation and older who are, have made some really great work uh, that inspires me a lot. Women like Isabel McKinnon or Joe Randerson or Madeline McNamara or... Alice Canton, uh, New Zealand's theatre-making rock stars. But also, I think it was really... Um, I'm really inspired by women who are also mucking in on a ground level, like um, Jackie Clark from The Aunties, who was recently mm. acknowledged in the um, next uh, Women of Influence Awards, mm. um, who's working with uh, domestic violence victims in South Auckland, and my absolute best friend, Leah Latusi, who works at Nine Eye College, um, really at the coalface every day of dealing with young people who, despite the world being a pretty messed up place, are really so much smarter and, and so much better than I think we were when we were at high school. So I'm, I really take a lot of inspiration from women working at Sapin and rape crisis that are habitually forever underfunded that are really doing frontline necessary things. I find them really inspiring. There will be men listening tonight and they'll, mm -hmm. be, they'll be listening and going, it's fantastic the work you're doing. And, and from my perspective too, and I sit back and I think Thank to you. myself, what... What can I actually do to to make this better? I mean, what are you? I guess what are you asking from men? And this is a hard question to 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 make things easier for for women in society. And there's no short answer to that. But I guess some men are going to be going. Well, we don't really know how to change. Perhaps because they don't mm -hmm. understand it from a, a woman's point of view. I'm wondering if you can just maybe help us a little bit. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not an expert, but I do think uh, the best thing to do is just listen to the women around you. Not don't feel like you need to actually you don't feel like you need to talk all the time. Sometimes it's great just to listen because that was the thing about me too, right? That a lot of men in my life were really shocked. And I was shocked that they didn't know because women have been dealing with this forever. And I, it, 
if you're listening to women, you know that these things are happening all the time. And maybe if you are in a position to not talk and let a woman talk instead, that is a, a really generous action you can do. I was hanging out with a male friend the other day who was talking about at work. He's just trying to not speak all the time. And yeah. that sounds like a really small action, but that's huge. I think women don't need men to save them or speak on behalf of them, but men are able to create space for a space in society in a way women aren't. Mm. So I think men should just listen and move out of the way, actually. Mm. Mm. And, and it's that, that's a really good point. Um, did you see Serena Williams when she had a fit at the umpire yeah. the other day? Yeah. 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 Uh, you can just imagine if, if that was a man, it would be, oh, he's so strong and he's mm-hmm. being very strong and, and he's standing up for himself. But, mm-hmm. but, oh, no, it's a woman. She's she's being a psycho. She's having a fit. Two, very, two sort of yeah. very different uh, ways to, to yeah. approach her being angry or disappointed at an umpire's think- call. But it's about perception too. Yeah, and I think for men to, for all of us really, to be aware of the narratives we've inherited and being smart about seeing what's going on in situations like that. Because that is, you that's reading it in a deeper way of going, if that was a man, it would be completely different. And just asking yourself that question a lot, I guess. And that's not just for men, that's for women. Also, because we've all grown up in this environment of asking that question, if this was a man, how different would it be? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I'm Let, optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm optimistic things are getting better. So am I. So am I. I, I think that in New Zealand now there's just a massive difference in generations and we're just seeing yeah. it, it, it mash between people that were brought up in, in a time that was so, so different to, to, mm-hmm. to where the world's heading now and, and it's, a, it's a real melting pot. Um, Julia Croft, thank you for your time. Medusa is being presented by Q Theatre and Zanetti Productions as part of Matchbox 2018 and is on now at Wellington Circa Theatre until the 6th of October and Auckland's Q Theatre from October 24 to November the 3rd. And you're listening to The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. It's 10 o'clock on Radio Live. The latest in news and sport from News Hub coming up now.